Let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD, specifically Slackware 14.2. Um, of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you, even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages, so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. First application on today's list is Dr. Conky. Dr. Conky is a crash handler for KDE. It is named presumably after the mascot of the KDE project, which is Conky, a little dragon, who is in turn, as far as I know, named after Conqueror, the very famous file manager and web browser, the KDE desktop environment. And I say KDE desktop environment rather than Plasma desktop environment, because really I think Conqueror heyday was in the KDE 3 um, time frame, which back then, of course, KDE was the desktop. After that, the KDE project decided that KDE actually referred to the community and that the applications themselves all had distinct names. So technically, it's not the KDE desktop. It's the Plasma desktop from the KDE community or something like that. So anyway, Dr. Conkey, Crash Handler, you might think you'd need an application to crash in order to experience the magic of Dr. Conky, but actually that's not necessarily the case. You can you can prompt Dr. Conky to come up whether sort of whether the application has prompted it or not. So this is a I guess what you you could say a proactive although a former boss of mine pointed out that that's a kind of a meaningless word, but proactive approach to getting a bug report started. So here we go. Um, first, I'm going to do a less on slash var slash log slash packages slash Dr. Conkey. There we go. This is 5.23.5 is the version that Slackware shipped with. And it's a, it's, it's an interesting and kind of strange, um, package really, because there's a bunch of well, there, there are a bunch of licenses in the documentation and, and then a readme, and apparently no executable, although if you look carefully, there is. But there's nothing in user bin from Dr. Conkey, so that might throw you off if you're not used to sort of the layout of some of these, um, some of the packages and sort of the logic behind how things are laid out in, in Linux. But the, the readme.md file is of some interest. It, it is short user doc dr conkey readme.md it's like 10 lines maybe and and a couple of them don't really apply to slackware because it has something to do with integrating dr conkey with core dump d which is a component of system d which slackware does not have access to so that that doesn't really concern slackware users so the bit that does is that there's a way to activate a debug button for dr conkey by adding into your .config slash, or, or a file at doc, .config slash rc, you could put drconky show debug button equals true, and then it shows a little debug button in the drconky window, which I'll, I'll do in a moment, but first I want to do 
a, a Docker Conky instance without, you know, just sort of as it ships from Slackware. So the way that we can sort of force Dr. Conkey to to appear to be to, to to start a bug report for you essentially is to well first start an application. So we could do I'll just click my dolphin icon here up in my little taskbar thing, my the thing that isn't a kicker apparently, the panel. And now I've got a, a dolphin window. And I can do of course a pgrep dolphin to get the the PID of that instance, and it is 3872. So now, if I try to execute Dr. Conkey, I'm going to type in Dr. K-O-N, hit tab a couple of times, nothing's coming up. Well, that's because this probably isn't in your path. So if you look at less, if you do a less on slash var slash log slash packages slash Dr. Conkey, and kind of scroll through, you see that, like I said, there's no user bin, user s bin, s bin, bin. Um, but there is a user lib64 slash lib exec slash Dr. Conkey, and that's the executable. So if you do the full path to slash usr slash lib64 slash lib exec slash Dr. Conkey, if you do, if you just execute that, you'll at least see that that's the executable, and it actually returns an error and says that an invalid PID has been specified. Fair enough. So I'll do user lib64 lib exec dr conkey dash dash well actually dash h for my help, and if you look through that, so it it claims the little help menu says that dr conkey followed by bracket options close bracket are required. Doesn't say which option is actually required, but it did error out because I didn't give it a PID. So I'm gonna assume that the thing that is required is a PID. So I'm going to go up in my command list here, Dr. Conkey, not dash H, I'm going to do dash dash PID, according to the help menu here, and then the PID of the program. So the program that I want to uh, file a bug report against is 3872, and that uh, appears to sort of cause my terminal to hang. It's actually not. But it does open up a little um, notification in my notification area, which, by the way, on KDE5 is brilliantly um, consolidated. I love the way KDE5 does notifications. Oh, I just lost my notification. Okay. Um, there you go. I, I talked too much. Uh, so here's the notification. And Dolphin closed unexpectedly. Please report this error to help improve this software. Of course, that's not actually... I'm going to click report bug. That's not accurate in this case. It didn't close unexpectedly. I'm I've I've prompted this myself. So it as far as it knows there's a there's a bug. It doesn't know what the bug is, but I've told it there's a bug. So it's telling me that there's a bug. Um and it says so there's this this you may have seen if you've ever seen a KDE application crash. Um it's a it's the crash handler, the KDE crash handler. It doesn't seem to be sort of given a name, interestingly. I don't know how you would know that this was Dr. Conkey. It's kind of an interesting thing. But um, it's telling me that it closed unexpectedly. You cannot report this error because Dolphin does not provide a bug reporting address. Uh, exec executable Dolphin PID 3872, signal unknown signal zero at this time. 
uh, and it tells me it gives me some developer information. So it has it has generated a a report which it again it thinks is a crash report. It is not a crash report because Dolphin has not actually crashed, but because I prompted this myself, it is doing exactly what I told it to do and treating this like an error. Um, and then from there, I could either uh, copy the bug report or the, the backtrace to my clipboard, or I can click this little disk icon, a floppy disk icon, to save the backtrace to a file. And, and then I could do my research, find out where Dolphin wants me to report bugs and paste all that information into the bug report and tell them what happened, which I wouldn't do, of course, because nothing's actually crashed here. But that's Dr. Conkey. Now, other things you can apparently give Dr. Conkey are prompts, like uh, the PID is 3872, but what signal was caught? Dash dash signal. Well, the signal zero has been caught so far because nothing's wrong. Um, but what if you got a signal, I don't know, two or 128 or something like that? Well, then you can put that in. Uh, dash dash app name. You can tell it the application name, app version, the bug address, so the address of the place that you're going to send this to, and so on. So you can you can set a lot of these things, you know, when you're prompting Dr. Conkey, but generally speaking, as hinted to us by virtue of the fact that Dr. Con that Dr. Conkey is not in the path, in your default path, uh, generally speaking, you're not really meant to uh, get Dr. Conkey going yourself. You're, you're supposed to wait for something to actually crash and, and then Dr. Conkey comes up automatically because it gets triggered by, by that, by that event. But that's, that's Dr. Conkey. That's it. That's, that's all there is to it. It's a useful little application. Um, when, when you're having trouble, feels very much like one of those things that just kind of magically happens. We don't really think about it. You don't think about what package is that in, or how would I launch that without having a crash, but now you know how to. Now, now you know where it is, what it is, and what you might be able to do with it. Next up is Elisa. E-L-I-S-A. It is, for all intents and purposes, the Amarok replacement. Now, I... I used to be a pretty um pretty dedicated Amarok user. I, I really liked the the development team, I liked the community. I was just I was I was happy with Amarok for a long time. Like a really long time. And and I like the flexibility of Amarok, as I've said with KDE applications before, the the sort of the malleability of the cute uh toolkit is is quite nice. So when I was looking for a music player on Slackware 15, one of my first places to check was Amarok. So amarok.kde.org. On February of 2021, there was an announcement that the Amarok 2.9.71 Alpha had been released. And after that, I, I haven't seen much activity on the site now, normally that wouldn't bother me. I don't really need activity on, on w when there's nothing to say. But uh, an alpha release implies a beta release, and a beta re release implies an actual release. And I feel like those things should 
be announced on a on a website and it's been over a year so i feel like alpha and then no activity it kind of implies that amarok isn't quite as active as it used to be which is again fine actually um if there's a working amarok for for my environment then as long as it continues to work that's that's perfectly acceptable to me for it to to sort of stall as it were um, I don't need, like, regular updates to something that's already working, especially a local application like Amarok. It's not like I, I need a whole bunch of security updates. I'm going to be using this locally on my computer behind several firewalls. It's fine. That said, I, I'm not comfortable using an alpha release, really, and I didn't really see any indication that it had gotten out of alpha, although on March 7th, there there is a a 2.9 release, let's say, let's say there's a, there's a bundle of source code that you can download that is marked as version 2.9. There's no indication that it's alpha. There's a tarball link to it. This is on a completely different page. This is community.kde.org slash Amarok slash getting started slash download slash source. And so that exists. The tarball's name is 2.9.0 doesn't have alpha in it. So I don't know if this is like the actual release that they just didn't announce on their website or whether this is a version of the alpha that they were referring to. Oh no, because this was in 2018. So you see my confusion. There's a, there's, there's a certain amount of, of, there's a lack of clarity with, with the state of Amarok at this point. And so I didn't want to get too invested in Amarok on Slackware 15.0 just because I'm, I don't feel terribly confident about sort of the, the state of, of Amarok's development, essentially. So I started looking at other applications. One of them was Juke, which is a jukebox type of application. Uh, that kind of appeals to me because it seems like it could be relatively simple and direct. Uh, but there was another one. There was one called Elisa, and I decided to take a look at it. When you first launch Elisa, it, um, I guess, superficially maybe uh, looks a little bit Amarok-ish. It is, um, it's a big window. It has your categories of things that you could look at on the left. It's got all of your, um, your, your, the, the, the main attraction in the middle, and then off to the right there's a playlist, and across the top there's your play and stop and pause buttons and your time your uh, time scroller thing. What are they called? I don't know. The time tracker uh, and a volume switch and, and things like that. And a menu, a little hamburger menu, the three-line menu. Um, and so it looks more or less Amarok-ish, I think uh, you could say. And that sort of appealed to me. One of the weird things about it that I noticed pretty early on was a a rather startling lack of um, malleability or configurability. You can't, like, I don't know what this is written in. I assume something cute based. I haven't looked. Uh, but it's just kind of disturbing to me almost that when I right click on panels or or when I look at my options for configure Elisa 
in the little hamburger menu here, there, there's nothing about unlocking panels. There's nothing about modifying the panel layout or anything like that. This is very, very much, as far as I can tell, a, um, a sort of a hard-coded UI, which I don't love. I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's one of my favorite features of this application, but that's where my complaints about it end. This is a really, really cool application, Elisa. In sp- as long as you're okay with its layout, which, I mean, honestly, I am, because strictly speaking, this is pretty much what, this is what my, my layout for Amarok would look like, practically. Um, I think in, in Amarok, I used, I used to have, I think I used to just do two panels, and I don't remember what those panels were. Or maybe it was two panels and then like there was a side icon bar, I think was, was what it probably was. Uh, one panel was my playlist and one panel was the, the, all of the music that I had on my computer. So, um, and I, I guess I should, I should say before I get started too, too deep into this, um, sort of an acknowledgement that I know a lot of people have gone to streaming services now for their music. And just for the record, I cannot do that. There's no way I would, I am, in, I'm not interested in that concept at all. Um, partly because I listen to, some seriously niche music. I, I have a lot of music that just, they, they don't make it onto streaming services. And um, at, at best, maybe Bandcamp. You know, a lot of the stuff that I listen to is from Bandcamp, and that does stream stuff. So that could be, you know, the, the, that could work, I guess, in, in theory. But I don't think that's normally what people think of when they think of streaming services. And, and then, you know, I, I have a lot of... Um, uh, just independent music that just doesn't, it just never got out to the world, really. I mean, it got out to the world enough for me to get a hold of it, but, but, um, a lot of it just is not, um, it's just not out there. So uh, the streaming service, plus I, I don't like the idea of being at the whim of some streaming service for, for music. That's just not in my interest at all. So I have a lot of music. A lot of it was ripped from CDs, compact discs, back when those were more of a thing, and some of them have been purchased digitally now. And either way, I have the files. They are on a hard drive. I keep them. They are things that I can carry with me for years and years and years. And many of these files that I listen to um, have been with me for years and years and years. Like I say, there's a lot of independent stuff that I listen to that were just musicians, friends of mine, whatever, who put some noise onto into a into a digital file, and and that was what they produced, and and I can listen to it, and really no one else can because I probably in, in some of these cases I think I'm probably literally, maybe not literally, but maybe literally the only person with copies of these things. Some of these are are kind of for me, that rare, because they're just things that maybe a person produced and didn't really ever think that they were, didn't think it was a big deal. But, you know, you listen to it, and, and then it, it becomes part of the soundtrack of your life, and so you want to hang on to it. And so that's what I've done. So, I got a lot of music, and Elisa is able to handle all of that music without a problem, which is quite nice. I appreciate that about it. Um, when you first launch Elisa it assumes that your music folder is 
tilde slash music, which I think is a fair assumption, although in my case it's not a correct assumption. I have all of my music on a separate hard drive, so I you can go into the application menu on the far right, go to configure Elisa, and tell it where your music folders are. So you could have a music folder be tilde slash music if you have some of your music there, which I, I used to kind of do that. I would have like my my frequently listened to music in my tilde slash music, and then I'd have sort of my back catalog, as it were, in, in this external hard drive. But uh, lately I've just had it all on my external hard drive, and, and it gets backed up to yet another hard drive, and so, and I, yes, I should set up a, a networked attached storage at some point, I just haven't really bothered doing that. Point is, I got my music, Elisa, I point Elisa to that folder, and it parses that music. Now, back up until recently, I I was very much a, um, and I, I guess I kind of still am, but I do it differently now with Elisa, but uh, generally, historically, I have been a show me my file system and let me choose the music that I want to listen to out of my file system. And that that is one of the things that I really enjoy doing is just having access to my files. I, I want to organize my music sometimes in a very illogical way that no one writing music applications thinks anyone would organize their music in that way and and I want that structure to be retained generally speaking and and so I like an application like VLC or something like that where you can just like um what is it XMMS or uh, audacious I just want to be able to see the music as I've put it onto the hard drive I want to open up an album and have it play and very frequently I rip CDs as a full file, as one, a single digital file. I don't rip it as separate tracks because I don't listen to albums as separate tracks. I listen to an album from start to finish. So that's kind of what I expect my music application to be able to handle. And to be fair, that's not what Elisa does. Elisa wants, I think by sort of by default, it, it wants to parse the metadata attached to your music files and to organize them by common music industry designations such as album, artist, things like that. Well, all of my metadata was not, not all of my files had metadata attached to them. So that was, that was causing a lot of confusion for Elisa. It would, it would show me the the 8,000 albums that I had, and then a bunch of unknown artists or unknown albums or, or whatever. Uh, and I think in some cases, if the tracks didn't have titles as metadata, that it wouldn't even show me that they, those files existed at all. So that was a problem. So I had to go through my entire collection, really, and finally, finally, finally fix all of the metadata, which, frankly, I'd been meaning to do anyway. It's kind of a nice feature to have, so I figured it was time to do it. So I did that, and I did that with an application called EasyTag, which I guess must not be... Where did this thing come from? Let's, let's do a less 
on var log packages easy tag looks like it comes by default with slackware oh it's in the xap the xap um category so i guess i won't talk about that for now but uh easy tag is a really really nice really nice application uh for for managing ID3 or, or metadata tags on your audio collection. There is another thing that I used though, which which was able to auto-parse a lot of the data for me so that I didn't have to enter it myself, which was KID3. That's another package that comes by default with Slackware 15. It's in the KDE application uh, series, so we will talk about that soon, you know, when we get down to the K section of the KDE. Um, category, which is what we're covering right now. Uh, so that's quite nice. EasyTag is supposed to be able to do it, but for whatever reason, EasyTag has some very specific um, CDDB database um, title databases hard-coded into it, and it didn't seem to be able to connect, didn't seem to be able to connect to uh, the ones that it had hard-coded into it. I don't know, maybe I configured something incorrectly, but KID3 did it perfectly, so I just kind of juggled back and forth between those two applications. Although, frankly, the KID3 one would have worked just on its own, but I just, I was getting used to the the easy tag way of doing things, and so I kind of liked hanging out in that. So anyway, combined with a little bit of, um, a couple of different ID3 applications to manage metadata, and um, just my the, the, my own knowledge of of certain things that weren't in those databases which there there were a quite a lot, quite a lot of those as well um i was able to get everything metadata so that all the all the entities showed up in elisa the cool thing about elisa though is that it does have a file view so if i hadn't wanted to do that and i just wanted to to to, to look at, at just the albums themselves, I could have done that. I have the ability to do that with the file view. What I was not able to do was figure out how to get the file view to go to pretty much an arbitrary location. Um, so you'd think that the file view would take you by default to your music folder but instead it takes you to your home folder. And I couldn't find a way that uh, for it to, for me to, to, to change that. I, I was not able to find a way to control where, where the file view took me. So I was never able to go to my external hard drive. But if you're the type of person to keep your music in your tilde slash music directory, and I could be one day. I mean, I could I could map anything I wanted to to sla- to tilde slash music. So it's not out of the question. It's something that I could do if I wanted to. Um, and if you were to do that, then you could do a music, you know, a file view of your music folders. So there is that option. Now, what makes Elisa, I think, really fun in the end is its album view. And even though it ignores how I sort my own albums. 
it does show me all of my albums in this album view, and it's this sort of beautiful visual view of all of your album covers. And if you're an album nerd or an album cover nerd, which I kind of feel like I kind of am, then this is just a, a great way to reconnect to kind of the the combination of album art plus the the music that you're listening to. And I, I guess there are probably a couple of different ways of looking at this, this, that, that matter. You know, I mean, on one hand, the music is what you are there for, so who cares what the album cover looks like? And yet there's just something about the combination of the album cover and the music, at least, or the, the album, at least for me. And, and I think it, it kind of depends probably on, on how you view music and, and sort of the phenomenon of, of albums, which is a modern phenomenon, you know, Bach and Beethoven didn't release albums. So it's, it, it's a new phenomenon. It's something that we've developed with pop music, uh, or, or, you know, popular music. So, and, and the fact that all of us can just go out and buy music now or acquire music in one way or the other. Um, so the fact that we have albums and these usually arbitrary, you know, historically pretty arbitrary artwork was applied to album covers. It's kind of like science fiction books, you know, you, you look at the album cover and you think, or, or video game covers, you know, you look at that and you think you, you expect one thing and then you start playing the music and maybe you get something completely different. Who knows? It, it's really kind of arbitrary. Around, what, the 70s maybe? People started really getting creative with, maybe 60s, I don't know. People started getting sort of creative with album covers and sort of tied in the album cover with the with the, the actual music that you're about to hear. Um, but then you've got, you know, companies that re-release albums and put whatever art they want to on top of them. So it's it's always a fun sort of weird thing to geek out about. And, and it's something that I really enjoy. So being able to see these little thumbnails of all the album arts is a lot of fun. I, it's something that I, I quite appreciate and quite enjoy. And it's something that I'd gotten away from by just doing my, my folder views of everything, just looking at the file system. You don't really get that connection with the album cover. This is a digital bookshelf, essentially, that contains all of your album covers. And so you can kind of scroll through. And I mean, what I've found is that I've, I've, as Amarok often said, I've rediscovered my music. I've found a lot of albums just through, through the artwork, you know, as I scroll through and think, oh yeah, I haven't heard that album in a while. I'm going to listen to that now. And so I'll play something. And then the cool thing is that once you, once you start playing something, and I've actually, I've just found something that's been mis, mis ID three tagged somehow, a minor threat album that doesn't seem to be showing the other songs. Weird. Uh, anyway, um, there is, um, yeah, when you see the, the album covers, uh, maybe you want to play something. And then while it's playing, the neat thing is you can, uh, there's a button over on the left to make the album cover sort of full screen, not full screen, but full window. Um, and so it, 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 it shows you the album cover on the left, and then it shows you all the different tracks on the right and which your current track is. Um, that is, if you have it as tracks, like I say, a lot of my albums are just one one single file. But uh, the ones that I've purchased, you know, as digital albums, they often come with separate tracks. So those are actually 
in separate tracks. Uh, and so you can kind of, you can kind of get out of your sort of bookshelf mode and, um, and see just the album cover, just as you might do if you're playing a vinyl, you know, you might set the, the vinyl album cover up in front of your record player or behind it or whatever, um, whatever you do with your album cover, or maybe you just hold it and stare at it while you're listening. It just depends. But yeah, it, it kind of brings that artwork of the cover and the music together in a really, really cool, fun sort of, I think, may as well go get some coffee. We'll come back for event viewer and uh, extra CMake modules. Okay, I'm back. I have coffee, and I have my coffee in this very, very exciting tin mug that I got recently. It's a very cool, I think it, it must be sort of, I guess, considered Kiwiana, as they say. So it's it's a New Zealand sort of historical tradition. And there were these, this might happen elsewhere, I don't know, but on trains back in, you know, the early 1900s, maybe, uh, and probably up until the 40s and 50s and 60s, there they they had these beautiful sort of um, metal mugs with that were covered in white. I guess it's called lacquer. I don't really know, but let's call it that. It's a white lacquer with a deep navy blue ring um, around the opening. So where you drink your coffee from, there's this. Uh, it's this blue lacquer ring and it was very kind of iconic and i kept seeing it in museums when i would go to a museum and there would be a part about the train train carriage and in the dining car you would be able to get i guess maybe maybe, i don't know maybe they brought it out to other places but i think i imagine it would have been a dedicated dining car uh you could go and get a cup of coffee or i no, you couldn't you could get a cup of tea and they served it in these white and blue mugs made of tin and it just seemed really cool to me i really i liked the look of it i thought it looked sort of i don't know old and historical and stuff so i i i sort of started getting attached to that because i would keep i kept seeing it in every museum and i just it became a you know an oddly familiar sort of sight and and I was really curious about it. I just, I wondered how it retained heat. I wondered how it felt in the hand and, and didn't the mug get hot from, from the coffee and so on. So I was very curious about it. And I, I assumed that I would not ever be able to actually get a mug like that because I thought it was a purely historical thing. And, and it is a purely historical thing. Luckily, I have moved to a town. I mean, I've been here for two years. I haven't just moved, but luckily I ended up in a town with a lot of people who are coincidentally interested in history. And uh, it it came to pass that someone actually had a stash of these tin mugs. I don't know why, but just for, I guess, whatever, whatever reason, stash of historical, or not historical, well, yes, historical, these tin mugs uh in the fashion of of 
you know, 1940s and 50s Kiwi New, New Zealand train dining cars. And so I was able to um, acquire a mug for my coffee in this fine tradition. And it's really nice. It's a really nice mug. I mean, it's it's one of those mugs where, you know, it's metal, so you feel pretty confident in sort of like the durability of it. And and it could just be for anything, really. It could be for coffee. You could put water in it. You could put juice in it. I mean, it's just one of those all-purpose mugs. And so I've been drinking my coffee out of it, and it's been great. The, the, the rim of the mug does get quite hot, interestingly. You pour hot liquid into a metal mug and go figure, the, the mug gets hot. But not unbearably so. You know, you can still pick it up, and after a fashion, you can actually drink from it. Uh, and it's just, it's just super nice. It's a really, really nice look. I'll have to take a picture of it and put it on the website or something, um, because it is, it is just such a nice little piece of history that I somehow managed to get a hold of. I never really thought I would, I would actually be able to find one in a usable, uh, condition. But there you go. And, and I mean, I don't know what the history of this specific mug that I'm holding in my hand right now is. I don't believe that it's like, you know, an artifact that belongs in a museum. I, 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 it just happens to be an old mug. It came from someone's personal stash of mugs. So I think it just used to be a lot more common than it is now. Um, and, and it's nice. And there's no indication on the bottom of where it was made. So I don't know where these things, I think they were locally made in New Zealand, which is kind of nice. So anyway, that's what I'm drinking my coffee out of. And as I do that, I should also talk about event views. There's not a whole lot to say about event views or frankly extra CMake models, which is the m modules, which is the next one. But um, the event views is a library for KDE PIM. That's the personal information manager. You may recall we spoke about um, KDE, what it was, a calendar, calendar something or another. And it was a, a thing that you could, Akinati, Akinati something. Uh, and it was a, a command in the Akinati uh, package, I think, where you could create events and, and calendar events and, and appointments and things from the terminal with this command. So event view is one of the things that kind of helps, you know, KDE manage all that stuff. And if I do a less on var log packages event views, then you see that there is um, a lot of include files. They're just included uh, header files, which is not terribly surprising, uh, and some CMake um, configuration files. And if I look at one of those header files, for instance, let's do a less on user include kf5 slash event views slash journal view dot h. Uh, that's a pretty good one, actually. Uh, this file is part of K-Organizer, SPDX file, copyright text, 2001 Cornelia Schumacher, SPDX license identifier, GPL2, include event view dot H, include Akinati calendar incidents changer, include K calendar core slash journal, and so on. So you've got, it's, it's a header file. It, it's defining specific namespace specific classes and things like that. So if you're writing a an application that wants to hook into the personal information manager, then you could use 
these libraries to help you do that. And if this were a very focused and very dedicated podcast, I would have some kind of cool demo application where we would actually use those header files and we could see how it would all interact. I'm not going to do that. That sounds like a lot of work. I mean, not that I'm afraid of a lot of work, honestly. I think it could be an interesting exercise, but I've just never thought about writing something that hooks into PIM before, so it that would it would take a lot of sort of thinking to come up with even where to begin with a demo application. So anyway, the next one in our list then is CMake, no, extra-CMake-modules 5.90. These are CMake modules required for the KDE 5 framework compilation. So if you're compiling something from KF5, then you would, you, you, CMake would, would expect to find these somewhere on your system. And most of them are in user share ECM for extra CMake modules slash modules. And then there's a bunch of modules there. So um, I guess let's look at this one. Find 7Z. That seems kind of interesting to look at. So I'm going to copy that path. And then I'm going to do a less on slash uh, USR slash share slash ECM slash find modules find 7z.cmake. So this is a little CMake module to try to find 7z. If the 7z executable is not in your path, you can provide an alternate name or full path location with 7z underscore executable variable. Okay, so, and, and this defines a couple of different variables, 7z found, 7z executable, 7z, um, 7, oh, that's 7z, that's it, really. Okay, so uh, this is a way for CMake to locate a specific application that it may be able to use during compilation. It, it's 7z because I just happened to ch choose the one that says find 7z. There's other find modules, I'm sure, as well. So this one um, is useful because if you know that you ha are dealing with sources that are zipped up with 7z, or, or if you have reason to believe that 7z would, I don't know, be useful for something, then CMake could become aware of it because of this module. And it enables things like D, uh, dash DC 7z underscore executable equals true or something like that. You know, so there are CMake variables now that exist because of this, because of this file that wouldn't have existed otherwise. So it's, it's, it's nice. It's, it's expanding CMake in very useful ways. Yeah. There's find Gradle, find gperf, find glib2, find Canberra, find libmount, find libcap, find phone number, find poplar, find pulse audio, lots of really useful things here. So this is all thanks to KDE project. They've got a bunch of CMake modules that you now have access to. Um, should you, you, should you need them? And I've, I've done an episode on CMake. Oh, find open EXR. That's interesting. Find Python module generator, find shared mime info, find tag lib, find gzip. Lots of really, really useful things here. I, I imagine, I mean, maybe not, I don't know. Maybe you don't need them, but 
Uh, they are useful, and they're all BSD. I think most of them are BSD licensed, so it's not even one of those things that you really even have to think about. You can just, if it's useful to you in something that you're writing, you can include it without really, it seems to be BSD3 either entirely or, or predominantly. So that's quite useful, I think. And CMake is a, is a really, really nice little system. I've been enjoying it when I do use it. I don't always use it. Um, it is, it's one of those things where, um, I don't, I, I don't know what the deciding factor is yet, but I have enjoyed it when I have used it and I've used it here and there for, for different, uh, configuration things. So, or for installation, uh, methods. So that's been a lot of fun. Okay. And then finally, finally in this episode, Last one we're going to cover is Falcon. Falcon is a web browser. It is a cute web engine-based cross-platform web browser. So this was quite the revelation when I installed Slackware 15. That Falcon, that well, that KDE now had a built-in web browser that was not Conqueror. Um, but that seemed to work really, really well. And so if you launch Falcon, F-A-L-K-O-N, and you are greeted with a nice kind of simple web browser, it is a, it's kind of what you would expect from a web browser. You get like a little speed dial screen in the front and it links over to Cupzilla which makes me assume that Falcon is a sort of a, a rebranding of Cupzilla, or maybe it's the, um, the, the successor of Cupzilla. I'm not sure, but whatever the relationship is, uh, it, it obviously is based on Cupzilla, which is kind of interesting to, to know. Uh, Falcon is definitely, I think, in my opinion, a better name for it. I think Cupzilla sounds, or yeah, Cupzilla is kind of weird. Falcon sounds kind of cool. So Falcon, it's a web browser. Uh, what can you do with it? Uh, you can, th there are extensions that you can install. So I have Adblock, um, Ad, whatever, Ublock Origin or whatever it's called, um, installed. So, so that's nice. Uh, there's preferences, so you can set your home page. You can tell it what to do when you open a new tab. You have a little bit of control over the appearance of it. So you've got a Chrome theme, you've got the Linux theme, you've got a Mac and a Windows theme. Uh, tabs, you can choose how tabs open and close and things like that. Um, browser, web browsing experience, you can choose how it deals with different kinds of file types what kind of fonts you use, uh, how you download stuff. Do you want to download stuff with a prompt or without a prompt? You want to close the download manager after the install? How do you want to deal with all of this stuff? Ch spell check, extensions. You got lots of extensions. Um, Adblock, KDE framework integration so that you can store your passwords with KWallet, which is really nice. You could even in, uh, integrate it with GNOME Keyring if you're using it on something else. PIM, you can add the ability for Falcon to store some personal data. 
which is a great phrase to say, right? You can actually add that act that activity rather than you know having to fight against it. So that's quite nice. Um, auto scroll and so on and so on. Password manager. Um, the default is K Wallet as far as I can tell, but you can change that. And um, you know the, the back end, you could do a database plain text or a database encrypted. I don't know. I use pass the pass command for my password management. So this doesn't quite work for me. That said, I haven't tried it with, for instance, database encrypted. Like, I don't know what that means. I haven't tried that. But KWallet, I mean, I have KWallet, so um, I could use I could use that for this. Um, so yeah, that would be something to look into, I guess. Uh, and... Yeah, that's sort of the preferences of Falcon. There's um, there's all the stuff that you'd expect. There's history. There are bookmarks that you could that you can uh, keep around. You can uh, that there's uh, a um, there's a tool menu which has a um, web inspector, which is kind of nice. So it's it's basically the the little um, web developer console that you might you may or may not use um, from from Firefox or, or I guess probably Chrome. I don't know. I don't use Chrome or Chromium all that often um, to really be familiar with its development um, system. But yeah, so Falcon Falcon's Falcon's nice. It's really really nice. Um, I was using it initially for quite a while uh, for a good week or two weeks while just not really bothering to install extra software on Slackware, which I did for a while. So um, it served me well. I was I was not unhappy with it. The, the main reason I switched over to Firefox, to be honest, was, well, there are two reasons. One was because Firefox does have a plugin for my password manager of choice, which is the pass command. So that that just kind of that was a quick and easy way to get sort of up and running with all the everyday like work dependent stuff that I had to do. So that was that was convenient to have Firefox for. And then the the other thing uh, is that Firefox has a container system, and it's or maybe I should call it a sandboxing system. I mean they I think they call it containers. It's not containers. It's not Linux containers. It's it's a it's a Firefox container thing, which is a um, multi-account system, so that you can open certain tabs under a certain identity, and uh, I use that at work so that I can open up work websites and intranet sites in this work container versus my personal container, and that just kind of keeps your cookies and things like that kind of separate from one another. So. That's a feature in Firefox that I've come to really appreciate, and Falcon, as far as I can tell, does not have that. The um, it, it has like a session manager, and it has obviously, well, not obviously, but it does have like a private window feature. So that kind of is a container, but the the advantage of the containers in Firefox is that you you know you have persistence across whatever persistence you you keep across sessions are are that they persist throughout your containers. So that's kind of nice. Um, that said, Falcon has been a, an excellent sort of uh, backup browser or 
you know, alternate browser for things that I maybe don't want to open up Firefox for because that's too much. Falcon seems pretty quick and easy and convenient. So I, I really like Falcon and I could see myself migrating in that direction, um, at least on this computer. I haven't looked for Falcon on, for instance, my work laptop yet. I don't know how easy it is to get on there. It's probably not terribly difficult, but it could require a couple of spec files. Who knows to, to do it right. Um, but for, for this desktop experience, I, I'm really liking Falcon. It, it is a nice browser. It, it has all the different features that you'd kind of expect and a couple more besides. I mean, the integration with KWallet is probably it's, for me, it's biggest strength because I mean, I'm using KWallet anyway, more or less because, you know, I mean, it's just there and I've just, I've. I've gathered things into KWallet. I could probably be better at managing my KWallet, but Falcon could be one way. You know, it could make that maybe a priority for me. So yeah, I'm 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 liking Falcon. I I think that it feels like a natural kind of browsing experience. It seems to be compatible with lots of different things, which is nice and not always true with modern day Conqueror. So I'm enjoying Falcon. I highly recommend that you check it out. If you haven't, you might be the type of person to just install uh, Firefox and just, or well, I guess it's already installed, right? So you might have just gone to Firefox immediately or something. Um, I didn't install Firefox because I don't install Slackware's version of Firefox. I install Firefox from um, Mozilla. I download their sort of pre-built binary and I copy it into Opt. And the reason I do that is because that way I can keep updating sort of easily with Firefox as they release updates. Um, I tried writing on ESR for a while. It was okay. It wasn't perfect. So I, I typically do update Firefox frequently. I have a script to do it for me. It just grabs the latest build and uh, puts it into opt and puts a desktop file into uh, tilde slash dot local slash share slash applications. So it feels like a local, it is a local application. It just happens to be sitting in opt as a built binary from Mozilla. So for that reason, I didn't have it installed for a while and I was using Falcon and hardly noticed. Like I say, the only real reason I noticed eventually was because of work where I just wanted a certain setup for my work websites and and a certain setup for my personal websites and a password manager that I'd already been using and have built up quite a lot called pass which I should do a I should do a show about pass sometime it's a really nice password manager um but I mean heck like I say k wallet should do you know well for most people anyway so it it that this may be the way to go and I may go in this direction eventually but for now Falcon is my backup browser, and it's quite nice to have. So do take a look at it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. In the next episode, I imagine, we will go over things like FFmpeg thumbs, file light, framework integration, Granatier, Grant Lee, and more. So thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.
Thanks for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not Klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open